Welcome to the Live Like It's True podcast, where we look at some of the most interesting and astonishing stories of the Bible and ask, how can we live like this story is true? I'm your host, Shannon Popkin. I'm an author, a speaker, and a Bible teacher. And here on the podcast, I'm inviting you to drink deeply of the true story of the Bible and live like it's true. I'm so excited to tell you about my two new books launching this spring. And here on the podcast, I'll be hosting two series in correlation with each of these books. So first, we'll do the Sarah series, and we'll look at the life of Sarah in Genesis 12 through 21, which is the topic of my brand new Bible study, Shaped by God's Promises, Lessons from Sarah on Fear and Faith. I love this story of the Bible, and I can't wait to dive in with you, both in the pages of this new book and here on the podcast. My second book launching is Comparison Girl for Teens. So excited about this book, co-authored by my dear friend, Lee Neenheis. We poured our hearts into this super fun and truth-packed resource that we know is going to help so many teens find freedom from the comparison trap. So here on the podcast, we'll be doing a comparison series, looking at how Jesus compared in a completely different way. I hope that every one of these amazing conversations will inspire you to better know the story, share the story, and live like the story is true. Rachel Adams, welcome to Live Like It's True. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be with you. I'm so excited for this conversation. You hosted me on your podcast, uh, The Love Offering, at least a couple of years ago. And that's kind of how I met you. And then we got to know each other a little bit through a retreat together. And um, so, but I'm, I'm really excited about having this conversation. It's kind of in celebration of your book that has just come out. A little goes a long way. Tell me about that. Yeah, that released in October. And I feel like it really is the story of my life. I've I've given God my little offering and said, Lord, do what you would want with it. And each and every day I do that. Like, Lord, make much of my little. And and he really has. And I feel like he does that with everybody. You know, we each are significant, inherently significant, and he's created us to do good works. And I I pray that everybody realizes how important everything that they do is. And so that's the heart of of the book. I love that. It's a devotional. So you're looking at a multitude of different little Bible stories, right? <laughs> and all of them start with a little. Yeah. Yeah. 52. The chapter titles, I'll just read a few of them. A little beginning, a little love, a little vessel, a little invitation. I just love that. And then at the end, you have a little about the author. <laughs> and so it's all packaged in littleness, which is so sweet. Your goal is helping women realize their God-given purpose and significance. So this book is really an outpouring of what you've been doing for a while. Also, you and your husband, Brian, run a family business and a farm in Kentucky. You've got two kids, Will and Kate, and two doodle dogs. Now, what are doodle dogs? (laughs) One is a golden doodle and the other is a labradoodle. Okay, got it. So we have a hobby farm. Eventually, we have goals to do more with it. But right now, my kids are in middle school. And so they are super involved in lots of activities. And then we've got the business and where I've got the podcast and the writing and you got a lot going on, lots of goals and but just not enough time to do it all. Yes, big dreams and little 
assignments. Exactly. So we hope that you listeners will grab a copy of this book, A Little Goes a Long Way, 52 Days to a Significant Life, where we're going to just talk about one of the stories that Rachel covered, A Little Group, and it's the story of Gideon. Rachel, can you just go back a chapter and tell us who is Gideon and where does this fit into the overarching story of the Bible? Yeah, so Gideon is in the Old Testament and he is first introduced in Judges chapter 6 and we first are introduced to him as um, a farmer and he is sent to deliver Israel from Midian and he is an Israelite and we first meet him as he's just threshing wheat. And that's what he's doing. He's just doing a common, ordinary, everyday job, which we can all relate to, right? (laughs) Um, And he's actually, uh, we find him kind of in a wine press. um, And he's actually kind of hidden underneath because he's actually afraid of the Midianites in that moment. I think many of us are familiar with the fleece, putting out his fleece and kind of testing the Lord. And he continues to do that because he's kind of unsure. And so that's kind of where we enter the story. They say he is the least in his family. He is the weakest in Manasseh, but God chooses him anyway. And an angel appears to him and because that's his response to the Lord. He says, uh, what I just mentioned, he says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. But the Lord responds to him. He says, I will be with you and we will strike down the Midianites together. So that's his task. And then that's when Gideon says, well, give me a sign. And then he continues to put out this fleece over and over and over again. And so then that's when we then approach our story that we're going to be talking about today in Judges 7. Right. So Gideon is not this huge war hero. We should not picture him that way. He's not a significant person in his family, in his country, in any way. He's seen as the little guy. And I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, we feel like we're the little person in the room. We're not really somebody who you would choose first (laughs) to do some great big thing for God. Like, I don't feel like I should be doing something super significant for God. I'm just little me. You know, do you feel that way sometimes? I always feel that way. I don't feel overly special, but the most gifted person in the room or the most talented person in the room, very much the underdog. Um, And, but I think that that's actually, if you look throughout the Bible, that's who God typically does choose. You even look at Jesus and his disciples. It's very common, ordinary, everyday people. And that's who God chooses to do his very best work. Yeah, we live in this like celebrity culture. I mean, even the church has adopted, I think with the rise of social media, like platforming people, putting them on pedestals, gathering followers around them and making them great. And, you know, God, I think just, he doesn't really have a lot of use for that. (laughs) He just uses whomever he will to do his great big plans and purposes. But in this story, he's going to do something that is very surprising, especially when you're talking military. Now, I don't have a military background. Do you, Rachel? I do not. No. (laughs) So, I mean, we're two girls talking about military stuff that we know nothing about, but we do know something about God and he is going to be revealed in this story. So can you just read for us verses one through five of Judges chapter seven? And we're reading in the NIV translation. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Yeah. So like you have too many men. That is like things 
that we don't ever say, right? Walking into battle. (laughs) You have too many men. The context is for seven years, these Midianites have been terrorizing God's people. They want every single man available. Israel is much smaller than this area of the Midianite army. And so, by the way, I got to back up and say this whole story we're going to talk about takes place in, it seems like the time of a 24-hour day, because we're starting early in the morning and the the men are camped at this spring and they're looking down on this valley where this other army is camped out. Like, I just want you to picture them kind of looking down. It's morning and God is like, all right, you got too many men, 22,000 men leaving. I mean, I just picture how that would have felt to those who were left people packing up left and right. And they're leaving because they're afraid. You know, it looks like confidence is low. Morale is down. They're thinking they might die. (laughs) And as we know, fear is contagious. So this could be a good strategy, but it's not logical though. God is going against logic here by Mm. appealing to like, all right, if you're afraid, you can just go. And what's the reason though that he gives in verse two? So that in order that they may not boast against me in their own strength. So basically he's saying that there will be no doubt that the victory is from God, that God will get the credit, that it won't be because that they had all the men and all the strength, like it won't be out of their own self-sufficiency, right? Yeah. And sometimes I think we do trust in numbers, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just more likely that some outcome we're hoping for will happen. Like I'm thinking even a big church, a big city. You know, you feel more protected in a big city sometimes or a big country or a big military, like all of those things feel a little more like the odds are in our favor when there's more people. Mm. And God often uses the little. He often reduces, he shaves away and using fear to get rid of the big so we can look at the little. I love that part where it says so that Israel would not boast against God. I have NIV too, but it reads a little different. It says, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Like Israel's going to say, if all 32,000 go into battle and they win, God's afraid that Israel's going to say, my own strength saved me. They're going to boast in themselves. But I think Mm -hmm. that's interesting that the text reads that Israel would boast against me. Mm -hmm. If you're boasting in yourself, you're really setting yourself up against God. Like, that's interesting, right? It is interesting. I'm just thinking about pride. Like pride has always been man's downfall and pride comes before the the fall. And like, we have to guard ourselves against that to stay humble. And so in, in many ways, like these men, like they just couldn't take the credit for the victory yeah. and God wanted to ensure that. Well, and I mean, we have to keep in mind that at this point in the story, they don't know they're going to win. You know, they want to win. <laughs> we know the end of the story, don't we? They do not That's know. True. And, mm-hmm. you know, 20,000 men have just left and they're standing there. And they were the ones who weren't afraid. There's fear here, but there's also potential for boasting. I love in Second Corinthians where God gives Paul this thorn, this weakness, you know, and it, mm-hmm. and he says it's so that you won't boast. He doesn't want Paul to be a boaster. And Paul, I mean, had some things to boast about. You know, he had some strengths. You and I both have strengths. We're communicators. We have things to contribute to the kingdom. And I mean, listener. Whoever you are, you've got strengths too. You've Everybody has the option of boasting in something, but God doesn't want us doing that. Um, he gave Paul this thorn, this weakness to keep him from boasting or conceit. And God wanted Paul to know that his grace was sufficient. So God wants us to remember that he 
is sufficient. We shouldn't be sufficient in ourselves. All right. So we've got 22,000 men who have packed up and laugh. And then God does something, I think, even more surprising. So could you read verses four through eight? So the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say that one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took them in down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongue like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands through their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. We've got another reduction here. Now we've brought them down to 300. And how does God separate them? In such a strange way. <laughs> Uh, by the way, that they, they drank the water, like if they were lapping it up or if they were um, getting it in with their hands, right? God's promises are like a set of parentheses. The first one is when he makes the promise. The second one is when he keeps it. And you never have one without the other. But often there's this long stretch between the two, much longer than we first imagined, right? That's what we see in Sarah's story found in Genesis 12 through 21. God promised a son, but in this wide stretch between the parentheses, she wondered, would God keep his promises? Could he? I'm Shannon Popkin, inviting you to come find the answer to those questions, both for Sarah and yourself, in my brand new six-week Bible study titled Shaped by God's Promises, Lessons from Sarah on Fear and Faith. Find out how you too can be shaped by God's promises in the waiting. Yeah. Do you have any insight on that? I don't. Do you? Well, I asked my husband about it this morning. I didn't until he said that he's like, I think it's because if your face is down in the water, you're a soldier. So he he was in the military. So he thinks more like a soldier than I do. <laughs> so if your face is in the water, you're defenseless. You know, you don't, you can't see who's coming. But if you're lapping like a dog, you know, you're a little more wary. You're a little more, you know, aware of who might be coming toward you. So, I mean, maybe it is they're segmenting them out by skill level. However, this still is not logical, Rachel. <laughs> this is still not like, oh, this is a good military tactic to send all but 300? You know, 32,000 didn't seem like enough. Well, how about 300? God is saying, though, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. Like just what you wanted, Gideon. I'm going to thin out your army. But I love that he says, I will thin them out. And then later he says, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. I will. God says, I will. Uh, earlier in the text, he says, I cannot deliver Midian into your hands. Or you, there would be boasting, but here's what I will do. I will thin them out and I will save you. What's surprising about God here? Even going back to in Judges 6, he's like, I will be with you. 
Yeah. And I'm going to help you in this whole process. And when Gideon was threshing the wheat, sifting that same metaphor of like sifting the wheat, I'm threshing through these people too. You know, that same metaphor is carrying through. And he's with Gideon in this whole process, like going through sifting these men. Who's got the faith? Who's going to be strong enough to to carry out through this battle. And he's with him through this entire time. Like, I'm going to help you. I will save you. Like that whole language is all throughout this this story. Yeah. And I mean, the overarching story is God is giving his people this land that he has promised them. He promises, he keeps his promises, and he Mm -hmm. invites us to live like those promises are going to come true. And yet Mm -hmm. there's a great threat here. There's this army who wants to kill them. (laughs) They're in a position where any minute they could be killed. And God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to not only give you this land, but I will save you. And when we look at this spiritual metaphor for us, you know, everything that the Israelites went through is sort of like a metaphor for us spiritually. You know, God promises himself to us. He says he's going to bring us to his promised land in heaven, and there will be battles that we have to face, and He will save us not only eternally, but He'll save us in every battle that we have to face. There's a very... Now, I have to be careful there, Rachel. I got to back up because God never promises that we will live in complete safety and that we will win every battle. The Israelites didn't. Um, but you know, just because we're trusting God doesn't mean we won't go through hard things. I just, I, you know, I always want to be careful to give a clear uh, parallel with Scripture. But if we're if we're talking about being saved from our sins like that's the overall the overarching salvation story there's great danger in saying that we're the ones who can do it. Let's just picture this battle, the Midianites, like that's sin. And it's just so vast and it's so powerful. But we're saying, I'm powerful too. I'm going to fight this battle. I'm going to win this battle over sin. I'm going to save myself. There's just great danger in saying that I can save myself. We can't. Have you ever felt inadequate to save yourself from your own desire for sin? Always. (laughs) Always. <laughs> yeah. I always felt inadequate and I need him every single day. I've just even just been studying uh, the Lord's Prayer, the daily bread. We need daily bread. And even how the very next verse is about forgive as you've been forgiven. Like I need to forgive every single day. And yeah. we can't do any of this out outside of the Lord. I'm just even thinking about we're going to have to go through battles. The Lord Yes, he is with us, but we're still going to have to do the work. Like he's going to ask us to go through hard things. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we think, you know, in this world, we're going to have still have trouble. And just because we're a Christian that and have a relationship with the Lord, that we're going to be saved from that. And and we won't. There still is battles for us to, to have to go through. And I think that that is just a good reminder, even in this story, too. Like there is still work for us to do. Yeah tasks that he's going to ask us to battle through and trust him, even when it's illogical. I don't know how many times I've heard you say that. We've got to trust him even when it does not make sense. We do know the end of so many of these stories. Mm -hmm. Like even as we're talking about, I'm like catching myself, you know, like, but wait, we don't know that yet. Yeah. They don't know that. They don't know that. And it's like, wait a minute, how scared must they have been? Yeah. Um, But it's illogical. You're right. It's like, that doesn't make sense. But they had to continue to walk it out and trust the Lord. Yeah. Here he's thinning out the army. I think he thins out the things that we might put our confidence in. You know, mm-hmm. whether that be our bank account or our workplace potential or, you know, he just, he thins it out. He, he's like, no, because look, there's great potential in you boasting or you 
thinking you can save yourself from these things. And I just need for your confidence to be in me. I remember a time when my husband, things weren't going well at work. This goes back about 20 years and it was a really negative experience for him. And I think God was thinning out our confidence in his work potential. He's gone on to do really well in work, but in that particular situation, it was not going well. And the options seemed very, very limited and they were narrowing. And I was so worried because he was kind of spiraling into like this fear and depression. Here we are, I've got two toddlers and I'm looking at what are we going to (laughs) do? Like he's spiraling. I was worried he was going to lose the job. So I'm on the internet doing job searches for him. This is back when you used (laughs) monster.com. And so I'm doing monster.com searches. I couldn't even tell you what he did. But I'm trying to search for jobs. It was just very, very low point. But you know what, Rachel, you know what we did during that time is we started fasting and praying. So like once a week, Wednesdays, we would fast and we would pray. And that evening we would put the kids, we'd let them watch a video for an hour and we would go in the office and close the door and get on our knees and pray because it seemed very bleak. It seemed as though he was going to potentially lose his job. We were very, very low, but I think God uses those times to help us transfer our confidence to the Lord. Um, when everything comes easily, when it, in all likelihood, we will get what we want and not have to go through a battle <laughs> right? of fear. Uh, those aren't the times that we put our hope in God. And, and those are the times that we tend to boast. And so God thins out our confidence in other things so that we can put our confidence in him. Shana, that is really good. That really ministered to me. And I think you're exactly right. I, I'm even just thinking like my son just broke his um, collarbone this summer. I'm even just thinking in his life, his right hand, and he was not able to do anything that he's typically able to do and just really a humbling experience. And mm-hmm. he's having to ask for so much more help. And I think when you're stripped away of all of those things that you're normally able to to boast in, you know, even yeah. just physically, emotionally, and, and spiritually, and but there was such beauty in that season as well. But I think um, you're right when it strips of everything else in your life, it does make you then so much grateful for everything else um, yeah. that you have and has your focus on him. And now as we're able to enter back into football season and enter into those things, we're so much more grateful. And then now we're so much more careful to give God the glory for the things that we are able to do um, and to to be grateful for um, his arm and to be grateful to be able to do the things that we normally take for granted, right? Yeah. And putting your confidence in the right place. My son played football too, Rachel. And oh my goodness, sometimes we would face a team, like if it was a really big team, you know, they had a stacked bench. I was just trembling because then our kids were getting more weary and we were getting hurt. And I, I mean, every time they would blow the whistle and then you know, the kids would go down on a knee. I was really not the mom over there cheering for more points. I was the mom praying like, please don't let him get hurt. It was a terrifying experience for me. Now we actually had a really big team, but, um, and Kate would be like, mom, I'm strong, you know? And I'm like, I know, but (laughs) it was just, it was hard. And, uh, I think God, even with our kids, he wants us to be trained and to, to look to him, to not be boasting in ourselves, to learn, to put our confidence in the Lord. My son right now is in, in a summer before another year of college. And he just got back from working at a camp. He's got like five weeks left and it's just hard to find a job. And I mean, his options are narrowing. So I told him this story this morning. I was Mm. like, let's look at the story of Gideon. God thinned 
the army. He thinned Mm -hmm. the options. He thinned their confidence. He wanted to so that they would not boast in themselves. But he's getting ready to do something really amazing. And that could be in your case too. You know, God wants for you to know that he has been the victor. He has gone before you. He has made a way. And, you know, that's what we're seeing here in this story. God is thinning the army. Let all the others go home, God said. So Gideon sent the rest of them home and kept 300. And then this this is interesting. It says um, these 300 took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. That's going to be part of our story, these trumpets. But, I mean, can you just kind of imagine the mass chaos here, Rachel, of 22,000 people packing up to go home in a day. 22,000 people barely live in my like little Kentucky County. There you go. <laughs> I mean, this must have been a chaotic moment. Yeah, I'm just picturing mm-hmm. like at the end of camp when everybody's packing up their, rolling up their sleeping bags. I mean, it's just mass chaos. This must have been chaotic. And then the 300 who are left go on this field trip down to the water. They come back. Okay, we're the ones who lapped like a dog. So we get to stay. All right, what is next? And passing off those trumpets. Oh, you're staying here. You can have my trumpet. What is coming here? There's just a lot of intrigue here in our story. We've got a good storyteller here. So the next verses, I love this part. This is probably my favorite part of the story. Uh, Let me just read this part. Now, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. So Midian is down below where Gideon's army is. Only 300 in the valley. So here our 24 hours have gone by. And that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. And then God says, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Like if you're afraid, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) Like, of course I'm afraid. Yeah. If you're afraid though, go down to the camp and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other Eastern people had settled in that valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent was overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands into Gideon's hands. Why is this surprising what God is asking Gideon to do here? Well, he's asking him to pretty much go down into enemy territory pretty much alone. Yeah. Like even without his 300 men. I mean, he's dwindling down the odds even more, really. Yeah, this was risky. Very risky. Um, But he trusted the Lord even despite his fear. Yeah, yeah. And even though you are afraid. And even knowing like the Midianites were as thick as locusts, like there's that many people. Just I can just picture that, like just the way that they describe that as many as the sand on the seashore. And, you know, they use that language. I was thinking back to even like Abraham, how there's Mm going to be generations as many as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore, that that's going to be his inheritance. um, And so I think that that was just beautiful, that that imagery, such a divine setup that he was he was going to overhear this conversation about this dream. (gasps) 
Is there a teen you know and love who struggles with the endless pressure of comparison? Maybe she drives herself to exhaustion trying to prove she measures up. Or maybe she shrinks back to the shadows, convinced that she'll never measure up. In my brand new book, Comparison Girl for Teens, co-authored with Lee Nienhuis, we're talking about the new face of this age-old problem, comparison. We've got lots of fun quizzes and stories to keep her engaged, and we've broken up the chapters by topic, talking about things that she's got questions about, comparing beauty, comparing femininity, comparing popularity, and more. But ultimately, our goal is to invite your teen to Jesus's healthier, happier way of living me-free. So come visit ComparisonGirl.com and get the answers that both she and you need on how to thrive beyond measure in a world that compares. Right. Yeah. So he's telling him go down, which, you know, go take this risk and listen in because he wants him to be encouraged. It says afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So you're going to have great courage after this experience, but I can imagine sneaking down. I mean, it's the middle of the night, right? And they're sneaking down just him and his buddy and looking at the, like you said, thickest locust, like that was not encouraging. That must have been terrifying to see this huge army. And you're exactly right, Rachel. God promised Abraham that his um, children would be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. But it's not yet. They're not. They're not that big yet. You know, they're they're still gaining in numbers. Mm-hmm. And at this point, there's only 300 back at camp, and so must have been terrorizing. But Okay, you pointed out the timing. Good stories always have good timing, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What does that show us about God? This timing and this dream and this eavesdropping? Like he's a God of perfect timing, isn't he? This always amazes me that God will use even people that aren't believers. Yes. We see that all throughout scripture too, that he will use kings to work according to his purposes and plans. And even those that don't even know that he is using for his purposes and plans. God has used a dream of someone who doesn't know him to encourage Mm -hmm. believers, right? Pharaoh had the dream that Joseph interpreted. He didn't know. Uh, Also, there's the time when Sarah was in Gazan and Pharaoh had a dream and Daniel, the dream King Nebuchadnezzar. What I think is interesting about dreams is dreams are the times that we are most incapacitated. Like we have no control over what we're dreaming. Yeah. So he's saying, I had a dream. We don't control our dreams. We do have some oversight over our days. We don't have oversight over our nights. This is something that was completely out of his control. He dreamed something. Do you tell people your dreams, Rachel, when you have a good dream? Yeah, it's funny. I do. And especially my nightmares. Yes. God, this was scary. I won't share those today. (laughs) But my kids, it drives them crazy because I always have to tell them my dreams. It's just like, I can't, I can't not. Do you remember yours? But I do. Yeah. Which means I think that I get good REM sleep, right? Is when you have dreams and yeah. yeah. So this guy must have had good REM sleep and he has this dream, which is a very interesting dream. What happens again in the dream? So he's he's dreaming about bread, which I, I love bread. So <laughs> I dream about bread too. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, it's about a round loaf of barley bread that came tumbling into the Midian camp and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. But my commentary, so it basically is talking about how barley grain was only half the value of wheat and the bread made from it was considered inferior. So in the same way, Israel's Uh tiny band of men was considered inferior to the vast forces of Midian. 
So basically, it was talking about how God made the underdog Israelites seem invincible. So it was like comparing the barley to Israel. And even the size here, I mean, you don't ever worry that a loaf of bread is going to take out your house. (laughs) You know, or your tent. True. That would be like, I had a dream that a bird came and flew at my house and it the house crumbled. Like, that's just ridiculous. It's like, it would never happen. And I think it's giving us a picture of like this army of Midian. They should never be afraid of Israel. And yet mm. they are. The irony is, I mean, this is ludicrous. Our loaf of bread would take out a huge tent. That would never happen. We should never expect that. That's why it stands out as a dream. But nor should we ever expect that this little army would take out the big army of Midian. But that's exactly what this soldier is saying. He's like, this can not be nothing but the sword of Gideon. You know, God has given them the camp. God has given this whole camp into Gideon's hands. So picture Gideon and his friends listening, one friend listening in on this conversation. Why would this be reassuring to him? Because he knew that God had gone before him and that God was preparing even the Midian army. It was almost like him putting out the fleece. It was like that assurance. It was that sign like, okay, God, I'm hearing you correctly. It was that confirmation, like, Lord, I, I know that you are with me now, and, and I've heard you correctly, and I can follow through with what you've called me to do. It's like the confirmation that we all need, you know, when we yes. pray for something, and it's like, I need to read it in my Bible. I need to hear it in a worship song. Yes. I need to hear it from a friend. I need to see it in a neon sign. You know, I'm that way. Oh, Are you that way, too? I am, and Gideon is, too. I love that. Like what I love in this story is the contrast between the first part and the second part. In the first part, like God is thinning his army. Like, I mean, that almost sounds mean. It almost sounds like, Gideon, I'm going to teach you here to trust me. But in the second part, he's reassuring Gideon. He's like, you know, if you're afraid, you know, Mm -hmm. go down, you're going to overhear something and it's really going to encourage you. So, Um, and give him that confidence he needs. And I, I think listeners, God gives us the courage that we need. You know, he gives us the confidence and he might give it to us from somebody who has no idea how they're encouraging us. They're just telling their friend about a dream and we're encouraged, or there's just a song on the radio, or there's a conversation that, have you ever had that where somebody tells you, you have no idea how, what you said, how meaningful that was to me? Oh my goodness. So many times it happens so frequently. And it almost always happens when I'm most discouraged. Um, I will get a a text message or a phone call or an email when somebody will say, Hey, I just wanted you to know that I, I read your devotional or I listened to your podcast or I heard you speak and it encouraged me in such a mighty way. Or, um, Mm -hmm. I've read your devotional three times and when are you going to write something else? You know, that's so sweet. The enemy can just attack your mind so much, you know, and it's in those moments when you're like, does any of this matter? Should I keep going? And then just all of a sudden you get one of those gosh, you're doing such a good job. Or even like little things, not even in the writing or podcasting or speaking world, when you're just feeling like my, my hair looks terrible or I feel bad about your way you look physically or, or whatever. Yeah. And somebody's like, you're today. And you're like, you. <laughs> it just seems like the compliments and, and kind words come at just the right time. I love it when I'm speaking from a platform and someone afterward will say, you know, when you said this, 
it so encouraged me. And I'm thinking, I didn't even know I said that, right? Like, I certainly didn't put it together that way, but God used those words to encourage you. Like, that's what he does. So whenever we need that encouragement, we need that just reassurance. He gives it to us in a thousand different ways. Like you said, whether it's a song on the radio, especially through his word, you know, here Gideon had God speaking directly to him, telling him, go down to this camp and listen in, and you're going to be encouraged. But we have God directly speaking to us through the story of Gideon. Like we can open our Bible and turn to the story and be encouraged, be reassured through this story that God wants our confidence to be in him. And he's going to give us the confidence we need to do whatever it is he's asking us to. And he is asking quite a bit of Gideon. He's the smallest. He's the weakest. He does not feel he's not a mighty warrior. And here is this other army talking about him saying, it must be the sword of Gideon, the son of of Joash. And that must have felt pretty amazing. Like what in the world that they would be talking about me that way? I don't think it turned into boasting though for Gideon because let's look at what we're going to see next. Could you read verse 15 of our story? When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So I see what you're doing there, Shannon. He worshiped God. He didn't boast in himself. He's like, thank you, Lord. You've done this. Yeah. Yeah. He gave God all the credit. Yeah. It's appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. Like how inappropriate it would have been for him to go back to camp and say, look, I'm the big man. They're talking about me down there. I must be a a mighty warrior. Like, oh, no, that's really inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes God does thin down our confidence in ourselves, Mm -hmm. but then he gives us all the reassurance that we need right? He gives us every ounce of confidence in himself. So then the end of the story is... They win. I do think it's so interesting. They place the trumpets and empty jars in the hands of them with torches inside. So there's no swords that win the battle. Trumpets (laughs) and empty jars. I think like it goes back to this illogical way. And then basically God just turns the Midianites against themselves. Like they really didn't have to fight the battle. God turned the Midianites against themselves with their their swords. And so I think that's so funny. It's like going into battle with a trumpet and an empty jar. I love that. Like Jericho. I know. You know, like just marching around. Like, okay. Very like Jericho. Yeah. There is some strategy there, like putting the light in the jar. So they snuck up, you know, and then they smashed the jars and then they could see the light, hear the noise be very disoriented. They came at the time of the changing of the guard. So then you're picturing like some of the guard coming back and they're feeling attacked. And then they all started attacking each other. But the Israelites didn't have to do anything. God fought their battle for them. And he fights our battles for us too. This story has such rich theological truths embedded in it. What are some of the false narratives of the world? that this story corrects? I think the main thing is that we need to do it all on our own. Yeah. So often we think, especially in our culture today, that we need to be independent, that we need to be self-sufficient, that we need to be very strong. And so what this is telling us is it's actually okay to be weak. Mm -hmm. It's actually okay to be dependent on the Lord. It's actually a good thing to be uh, (laughs) dependent on the Lord um, because he's the one that makes us strong. Um, And so that's the main thing that I see in this story. 
story, like lean into the Lord, trust in his timing, everything that may be happening to you, it may feel illogical, but he's doing all this so that we can boast in him and not boast in ourselves. And that's a good thing. Yeah. The first false narrative is that it's all up to us. You know, we have to save ourselves. We have to be strong. But then I think also bigger is better. Mm -hmm. I see that kind of taking root in the church right now. Bigger is better. Bigger church, bigger following. Like you can't really accomplish much good things for God if your church is only 50 people, right? Or your Bible study group is dwindling. But that's just Mm -hmm. not true. I have experienced some of the greatest fruitfulness in small groups, little groups of people. Have you too? Absolutely. There's intimacy in in small groups. Um, I think there's authenticity. There's more vulnerability. There's a closeness. You know, you think about even Jesus. Yes, he spoke to to multitudes and thousands, but he always came back to a group of disciples, 12 disciples. That was a close group. And that's how the early church started. And then it spread. And I think that there's such beauty in that. And I even think about like the early church, he would send them out two by two. Like there's strength in, yeah. in those numbers. Um, and so we do need each other. There is power in in a group. We don't need to be- Don't be alone, right? You're right. Don't isolate. It, it's not about the size of the group. It's about yeah. the one who is within the group, which is the Lord. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I think sometimes I live this false narrative thinking, well, it's more significant if it's bigger. So like if I get to speak for a very large audience, well, that's significant work, but a smaller audience, not so much. That's just not God's way. Like that's giving into the false narratives of the world. This year I'm starting a ministry. It's called Women Teaching Women. A friend and I are co-leading it. And we're going to be investing in 12 women who want to learn to teach the Bible. It's going to meet in my home. We're just a a little group of women from the Grand Rapids area. And I'm going to give a lot of time and energy to that. You know, it's not something that I think will build a resume or whatever. Like that's not going to get me some publishing deal, (laughs) but I think these little ways that we serve, they're very significant. Seeing only big things as significant, that's just giving into the world's way of looking at it. God wanted for Gideon to march in with a group of 300 because God wanted them to boast in him. And he wanted them to see the significant part of their work is what God was doing, not what they could manage on their own. Well, I'm even just thinking about Jesus meeting with one woman beside the well. That was important to him. You know, you think he had 33 years on earth. That was it. Three years of official ministry, and he chose to spend his time that way when he could have gathered with multitudes of people. Yes, he taught in synagogues. He taught big groups of people sometimes, but he also had moments where he was alone praying in in solitude. So we're not saying like the large groups are insignificant because like look at the feeding of the 5,000 or when Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, there were thousands of people there. So those weren't insignificant by any stretch, but that's not the only way God works. And so, you know, whatever God has called you to, whether it's big or small, like really the point is that our confidence would be in him. Like I love that you said in, even in that small group, it's the one who's among us, God, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that's Mm -hmm. what makes it significant. It's the little group or the big group, but if he is in it, you know, that's the significance. So how can we live like the story is true? How can we hold on to the story and refresh our minds with it? I think to see ourselves in this story is, you know, Gideon was common. He was just going about his business. He was working. He was threshing his wheat. That's when the angel appeared. And that's often how God meets us too. 
right? We're just going about our business. The Holy Spirit kind of pricks our heart and speaks to us and gives us a task. And so often we think, well, if I'm scared or if I feel inadequate or feel like I'm I'm not called to this or don't have what it takes to do this, then maybe I'm not supposed to do what he's calling me to do. Or if he's dwindling down the resources, or maybe I've heard God wrong. Um, But I think what we learned from his story is may actually be exactly what he's telling you to do. Exactly. Trust him in it. Continue to walk it out. And as you pointed out so beautifully, he will give you and we'll pray that he gives you the just the little encouragement that you need along the way to continue on in the battle because it may feel like a battle, but that there will be victory, maybe not here on earth, but for sure in eternity one day with him. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one way that I live like it's not true is when I boast. There are ways that I want to make it known that I did this thing. And that is just, that's just not living the true story because God is the one. I am so small and I am so weak. And yet God wants to use little people like me to do big things. And so living like it's true is boasting in God, not in ourselves, not saying my own strength has saved me, but recognizing God is the one who saves us. And God is the one who marches us into battle, knowing that he will take care of us. I think also too, living like it's true is knowing that God will give me the encouragement that I need. You know, I just love that God said to him, afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. (laughs) You know, he knew Gideon needed that encouragement. So if you need encouragement, living like it's true is knowing God's going to give it to you. You just keep listening, right? If you are so discouraged, if you feel so outnumbered, if you feel like whatever you're battling, it's just going to overtake you, whether it's a battle against sin or against some shortage or whatever it is, God's going to give you the encouragement that you need. Yeah. He will be with you. And I love what you said. We have to give him the credit and we have to give him the glory. And I think too, I'm just reminded of the fleece. We want to be in his will. We want to hear his voice. Um, and I think he will give us those reminders and those signs. And that would be my prayer for each of us today, too, that we would hear correctly what he wants us to do um, and, and yeah. continue to walk in obedience to what he's leading each and every one of us to do. Yeah. Even if he's asking you to do something that seems so illogical, right? like something that's like so backward, like maybe go mm. smaller instead of bigger than your resources or do something that is so illogical. Like, yeah, that could be God asking you to do that. There's a man in Acts, he goes and, and leaves this kind of really big position and he goes along the road to read to this man and he starts to explain the Bible story to him. Yeah, it's Philip. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh-huh. you. And it doesn't really make sense why he would be doing this, but then he reads and explains this Bible story to this Ethiopian man that then that goes and takes the gospel to this whole other nation. Yeah. And and so you think, why would I be leaving this bigger platform, so to speak? Right. Yeah. And it seems like you're lowering yourself. Yeah. But yet it actually was part of a bigger story that God had in mind. And so from our earthly perspective, so much of what we're doing doesn't make sense, but from God's perspective. One day we will see how God has used it all. We just can't always see it from our perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, just like as a wrap-up thought, picture this army after this victory. These 300 men, they haven't even had to do anything with their swords. They just smashed their jar, (laughs) held up their torch, blew their trumpet, and God gave them the victory. 
And they're like, there was only 300 of us. And then all of those 30 some thousand who left looking on like, look at God gave us the victory. I wasn't even there, (laughs) right? I mean, God is victorious and he wants our boasting to be in him. Little groups of people can do mighty things through the mighty work of God. Thank you so much, Rachel. A little goes a long way is uh, Rachel's devotional, 52 Days to a Significant Life. And it's packed with stories like these. Um, Our Bible is full of examples of little stories, little people, little amounts, (laughs) and big outcomes. And we want in on it, don't we, Rachel? Like we want to just use our little lives to be part of this big story, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. But to give him the glory. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Can I just remind you that each of these stories from the Bible is absolutely true. Rather than giving us a list of facts to memorize about himself, God gave us a book filled with stories, and each one helps us to know him and to understand this overarching story that we are all in. So I hope that you'll take some time looking at this story in your Bible. To help you study, I've put together my free Live Like It's True workbook, which includes my false narratives watch list, my story elements bookmark, and more. Live Like It's True is part of the Resound Podcast Network. For more gospel-centered resources, visit resoundmedia.cc. We've got that link for you, along with links to any of the other resources that we've mentioned in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining me, and now it's time to go live like it's true.